This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Muller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Josh Hawley serves as the senior United States Senator from the state of Missouri. As Attorney General and as a practicing attorney before that, Senator Hawley earned a reputation as a leading constitutional litigator, arguing cases all the way to the United States Supreme Court. Since his election to the United States Senate in 2019, Senator Hawley has been a member of several important committees, including the Judiciary, Armed Services, and Homeland Security Committees. He is also the author of the recent book, Manhood, The Masculine Virtues America Needs, which is the topic of our conversation today. Senator Hawley, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I think uh, you know you started an argument, and I think you intended to start an argument, and at least uh, formally, you kind of started this argument at a 2021 convention, the National Conservatism Conference, when you spoke about a crisis of manhood. So uh, what were you doing, and uh, what was the argument you hoped to get started? Well, the argument was that American men really are in crisis, and if you look across the data, it's really clear. I mean, you can look at the number of men committing suicide the number of men struggling with depression, the number of fatherless homes, which continues to go up and up in this country, Uh, the number of men who are out of work and not even looking for work. We're not talking about unemployment, but not even in the labor force at all, a number that's also staggeringly high. And I think if you look at those various indicators, what you can see is there there really is a crisis of men in this country. And the question is why? And what are we going to do about it? And the book really began with me thinking through that and then also thinking about my two little boys who are 10 and 8 now and thinking about my responsibility as a dad to help them become the men God meant them to be. Well, you write uh, in your new book, Manhood, The Masculine Virtues America Needs. You write about both uh, the virtues uh, and uh, the the roles that a man needs to play uh, in society. And yet this argument you started back in 2021. Uh, really was an argument against not just the face of the statistics, which are quite daunting in terms of a crisis of American men, uh, but a, a crisis in the culture that makes it virtually impossible to talk about these things honestly in the public square. That's right. Yeah, it's it's really an argument about what the left, I think, what they have done in terms of their cultural argument and, and their cultural power that they have amassed. And the argument that they have made to men, it's not really an argument, actually, it's more of a it's more of a, a jerry-made. I mean, it, it's sort of a, a hectoring shouting from the left, which goes like this. If you are a man, you are toxic. If you are a man, you make the world a worse place just by being a man. And that's especially true of the quote-unquote traditional masculinity, which is, of course, for them a curse word or a curse phrase. And so I think that American men have heard this. They've had this drummed into their heads for decades now. They start on it, the left does, as early as when our kids go to kindergarten, where boys are told that they shouldn't be rambunctious, that they shouldn't be playful, that they need to sit still. Otherwise, they're medicated. Their play is interrupted. And it continues on through their school years and, of course, then reaches a crescendo when they go to, to college or university. So I think that this message that the left has sent which is that there's something fundamentally wrong with masculinity. And of course, they're now also saying that there's something fundamentally wrong with womanhood, that it doesn't exist either. That is itself a toxic message. You want to talk about what's toxic. That message is toxic. And you can see it in the effect on men over years and decades. You know, Senator, I think there are those who uh, hearing this conversation would say, well, here you have just uh, two conservatives complaining about the left and an illusory you know, figure we're boxing with. But this is not an illusion, and and nor is it a recent argument. I think most conservatives in the United States fail to understand this is the result of a sustained argument made over the course of a of say a century at least, and uh, with uh, with remarkable speed here in in the more recent decades. Yes, and in fact, it has really reached a crescendo. I would say in this country since the 1960s, and I tell the story a little bit in the book. What really happened in the 1960s, in my view is that a new form of Marxism, a a form of cultural Marxism, really began to take root in American universities. And the focus of that Marxism was on, frankly, our biblical heritage. It was on the distinction between male and female. It was on the, the traditional family, our history as a nation. Anything that smacked of the Bible and the Bible's influence 
these cultural Marxists wanted to overturn because they defined that as the the oppressive obstacles that was preventing the revolution. You know, so this new generation of Marxists really wanted there to be a cultural revolution. They were less interested in economics, a cultural revolution. And what stood in the way of that? What was the obstacle to that, the villain? It was really the Bible and our biblical culture, our biblically influenced heritage in this country. And they began to really launch an assault on that. That started in the 60s in the universities. Now, of course, it is entirely mainstream on the left. Now this way of thinking has captured the Democrat Party in large measure. It is hugely influential in the corporate C-suites. It is hugely influential in the entertainment industry and, of course, the media. And so men are getting it, and women, too, are getting it force-fed to them from the commanding heights of culture everywhere that they turn. You know, you use the term cultural Marxism in the address and in the book. And uh, I appreciated that because uh, I also insist upon uh, the term as a quite legitimate and appropriate term because the Marxists themselves used it in their own way, especially in German, uh, you know, referring to the fact that the uh, the Marxist revolution that they had predicted in the economy, as you said, didn't come. And uh, and so they were going to have to bring about a revolution in society by other means. And, and by the way, the, the antipathy to biblical Christianity and to the Christian shape of Western culture as you know, that was held by Marx and Engels. It just didn't happen in terms of the economic uh, catalyst for revolution. So they decided to take it to the culture. And I thought as a younger man, that cultural Marxism was uh, was more of a European threat. I was wrong. It, uh, it It is now what explains the current contours of American culture. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important just to unpack a little bit what their thinking is, because it is now so influential. And I really do think it's the dominant threat of our time. I mean, they're, they're thinking the cultural Marxists came to believe that the revolution that Marx predicted hadn't happened because he was only half right, Marx, uh, that uh, according to them, uh, that uh, he had been wrong about the dominance of economics, uh, that his, his materialism, his dialectical materialism was too economically focused, that in fact, culture was just as, if not more important and determinative of human behavior than economics. And they identified in the United States a Western culture that they agreed with Marx was totally oppressive, but they came to think that it was not only capitalism that was the problem. It was the cultural conservatism, frankly, the cultural biblicism, Christianity, and the influence of, of Christianity and Judaism on our culture that was really the most oppressive thing about America and what was holding and the whole West and what was holding back the revolution they wanted to see. And so they aimed their fire at the Christian influence, the biblical influence in our culture. And that's been going strong now for 60 years. And we've seen it in recent years really reach a crescendo where that way of thinking has come to be very politically powerful, very economically powerful through the corporations and advertising and entertainment. And I think it is much the threat of our time. And the only antidote to it that I see is to return to our biblical heritage, to go back to the foundational truths that are at the core of our culture. And the left hates it when I say that, but that's just the yeah. truth. And that's why right. I spend so much time in the book talking about the Bible and the Bible's vision of manhood. You know, at that same conference, the National Conservatism Conference a year later, I, I tried to make the argument that uh, the left right now tries to say that there never had been a Christian shape to Western civilization. But uh, the best documentation for that argument, for my argument, your argument, is actually found uh, on the left, because those who were the architects of that revolution made the very point that what they were trying to overthrow was the Christian shape, the biblical shape of civilization. So, you know, the, the modern left is just basically pressing a lie that that, uh, that that structure didn't exist because their own forebears identified it as public enemy number one. Absolutely. And you can see this in the writings of the 1960s radicals. You can see it. And I quote a number of them in the book, including Marcuse, who was very right. clear that the Christian influence in this culture, the biblical influence in Western civilization right. writ large is the problem. And, and by right. the way, you know, it's still clear today. I mean, remember that Smithsonian exhibit from just a year or two ago that our tax dollars all paid for in which the Smithsonian announced yes. that the nuclear family and the uh, traditional work ethic and the idea of mother and father, that these were white patriarchal influences and that Christianity was also a white patriarchal artifact. I mean, so there you have it. It's the same agenda yeah. that all of these things are great cultural inheritances are in fact racist, are in fact bigoted, are in fact oppressive and need to be overthrown. 
You know, uh, this is a good juncture for me to mention uh, someone I'm always uh, glad to mention, and that's Piterim Sorokin, uh, the Russian immigre who uh, really kind of founded sociology at Harvard University, although I doubt anyone in that department wants anything to do with him now. But he made several arguments back in the, uh, in the early 20th century. One of them was that every civilization basically finds its way to what we would call the natural family. Otherwise, it doesn't continue to exist, period. The second point he made is that, uh, that the, the second greatest civilizational challenge after reproduction is the successful transition of boys into manhood in every single society across human history. Uh, we're deliberately uh, foreclosing our own future on that score. Yes, we are. And uh, this reminds me of something that a, a more contemporary commentator said to me recently, but one I, I suspect your audience will know, which is Dr. Jordan Peterson. He, he commented to me, and I think this is an, a good insight, that nature initiates women into womanhood, but culture must initiate boys yes. into manhood. And so yeah. we really, you have to actually do something and there needs to be these cultural moments, this cultural effort, society-wide effort made where we say, here's what it looks like to be a good man. Here's what it looks like to not be a boy any longer. Being a boy is great. I've got boys. I want them to be boys. But at a certain point, we want them to mature into responsible, strong, dependable men. And our society, under the influence of these ideologies we've just been talking about, has largely abandoned these rites of passage, uh, these, these rites of initiation, and the whole idea of transition from boys to men. And I think that's one of the reasons, frankly, we see so many grown men who are acting like small boys and don't seem to know how to find their way to manhood. And so part of what I try to do in the book is return to some examples, biblical examples, that's of right. what strong male leadership, what strong, good men look like. You know, uh, the point that uh, that you mentioned that Jordan Peterson made is, is a point that has been longstanding as a principle of conservative observation, and that is that no society in human history seems to have had a great challenge in the transition from girlhood to womanhood. Uh, every society seems to have had a significant challenge in managing the transition of boys into manhood. And, and by the way, this goes back to in anything, whether it's as universal and historical as Sparta and Athens, or uh, for that matter, Eton, uh, where, as the British said, the, uh, the, the, the England's wars are fought and lost, first of all, on the playing fields of Eton, or uh, the, the development of the Boy Scouts back when uh, people in the Victorian age and in the early 20th century were very concerned about uh, American boys and British boys falling behind in physical strength and uh, in manhood of, uh, we'll say, threatening German boys and the German Empire or the Nazis. And, and so, in other words, this is a perpetual issue. Everywhere you look, in, in, including in the Bible and the book of Proverbs, you find the same pattern. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why I think that there's so much wisdom to be had as we turn back to the as we as we undertake this effort, if you like, of cultural and historical reclamation, yeah, you know, we realize that. Wait a minute, there may be something out of joint in our current historical moment. Maybe what we're seeing right now is actually dysfunctional. Let's look back to our history. Let's look back to the right. biblical example and model above all, and look like look at what it looks like to become a healthy man. What it looks like to become a good man, and really ultimately try to recover the biblical picture of yeah. manhood and what it's for. I think one of the big issues that we have now, and that I certainly find in talking with young men for a, a time I taught them, you, of course, teach, I did, and I suspect that your, your experience is, is like mine in this, as you talk to young men, what I find over and over is young men say they don't really have a vision for their lives. They're not sure what it is they're supposed to be doing as men. You know, what is it as a man? What's their, what's their mission supposed to be? They don't know because our culture no longer gives them one. The Bible does. And I think that's why returning to this, the most important of our moral sources, of course, the one that also happens to be true with a capital T, yes. uh, I think is so vitally necessary and promising. Yeah. And by the way, uh, uh, the, the, the school, the, the uh, seminary and the college, I have the honor of leading. We, we basically understand we're getting the, the most focused, most mature uh, of the young men of that generation by the time, because I mean, they can't come here unless they have a pretty good idea of their place in the world and what God's called them to do. But every single one of them will tell you about all of uh, those in their own generation left behind in that massive confusion. I want to turn to the argument you make in your book, but I want you to do one thing for me first. Sure. Um, the, uh, the boy crisis in America right now 
it, it is so acute, and uh, you document this in your book. I, I, I want you just to lay it out just, just in summary, but I also want to ask you, why is it that the entire society doesn't see this as one of our most important civilizational challenges? You know, it's a good question. I, I do think it's because the folks who are principally responsible or largely responsible for fostering it in terms of the ideology that they have pushed that has gotten us here can't bring themselves to admit that what they've done is wrong. And you start to see some now on the left, and I, and I credit them, including the former presidential candidate, Andrew Yang, who wrote not long ago about the problem with boys, and where he said, you know, actually, there's a problem with young men and boys in this country. We should admit it. He's right. I mean, that that's great. It's it's surprising how few voices there are, though, in his camp on this. And I think it's because it's it's hard to look in the mirror and say, wait a minute, maybe the message we've been sending, maybe the practices we've been urging have been bad for boys. And when you look at the the crisis across the board, whether you're looking at the numbers of, of young boys in early childhood years who are diagnosed with ADHD or ADD, who are prescribed medications. By the way, this is way off the charts in the United States compared to our, our comparable nations in Europe or elsewhere. I mean, way, way off the charts. You can look at the studies that say that young boys play is interrupted at far greater rates than young girls uh, play is as early as kindergarten. So you look at this with, with boys, and then what happens is they get older, they start dropping out of high school. They're doing that now in greater numbers than in decades. College now, a huge collapse in just the last four or five years in the number of men who are going to college. Women now outnumber right. them two to one. I mean, it's really, really striking. And then by the time we get into the 20s, we have the, the crisis of suicide. We have the crisis of mental health and depression. We've got drug abuse at all-time high levels for young men. It, it truly is. It is a crisis. That is not too strong of a word. And I don't know how you can look at any of those numbers, any slice of that data, let alone the whole picture, and not agree that we've got to do something different here. Well, let's turn to the book. Again, the title's Manhood, The Masculine Virtues America Needs. I have to tell you, Senator, I was a bit surprised by your book in two ways. And, and the first was, um, and I say this as a theologian, uh, it was a far more biblically-based argument than I had expected. And uh, I'm going to come back to a little bit of the surprise there. But uh, how did you come to uh, to think through the framework for the argument you wanted to make in this book? Well, it's it's an interesting question. I, I did not set out to write the book in this fashion, to be honest with you. But as I started to think about manhood and I started to think about what is it that makes a man a man, to me— it's awfully question begging to say, well, it's this character trait or it's that virtue or it's this practice. You have to explain why. Why would that be true? I mean, why is it that that courage is important to a man? You have to have some underlying definition, understanding of manhood. Or even why is courage preferable to cowardice? Co correct. Yeah, yeah, correct. And particularly when you push beyond uh, things that probably few people would, would argue that courage is better than cowardice. But when you start to 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 push a little bit more controversially, let's say in our present cultural moment, and you say, actually, no, it's a good thing for a man to choose to be a husband. It's a good right. thing to prioritize being right. a father or, or a warrior, for instance, another right. moniker I use in the book. Then I think, you know, you're going to get pushback from the left on that. And so then you have to answer, well, why? And for me, there's only one why, and that is the the biblical picture. So I found myself as an author pushed back toward the biblical picture of manhood. And of course, as a believing Christian myself, I mean, this is ground zero for me. And so I really thought through this, had to, had to think out my argument in terms of the biblical viewpoint. And that's why I ended up writing the book the way I did, and it took the shape that I did. And frankly, it has totally baffled my, my critics on the left who I think it's one one reporter put it to me. You'll like this, Dr. Mueller. One reporter stopped me in person and said, is that he'd only read the first two chapters. And he said, is the whole book full of the Bible like this? And I said, I'm afraid it is. Yes, I'm afraid it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I'm, I'm glad it is. But honestly, I was surprised it was. And, and the second surprise is that uh, this isn't just uh, Bible pastiche here. This is this is not just a bunch of paste-ups of Bible verses here. There's, I have to say this... Uh, <laughs> Uh, there's a pretty sustained biblical theology behind this. Uh, one that, uh, by the way, has uh, has only really surfaced uh, or resurfaced after the Reformation in our circles over the course of the last several decades. It, it's the understanding that there's a sustained narrative in Scripture that follows the themes of creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. And uh, you actually uh, make that pretty much the structure of how you make this argument. And uh, I, I, I say that 
in order to just say to to uh, those joining this conversation, listening to it, uh, there's a lot more here than just the recitation of some Bible verses. Well, I'm I'm glad you think so, and that is what I tried to do. And you've you've laid out my understanding of just to go all the way back to, to square one. I start in Genesis. Yeah. Uh, I start with with the Garden of Eden. I start with the first man with Adam. But I really think that that there. We see, of course, the entire story of the Bible laid out in a, in a microcosm. I mean, what is Eden? I argue that it is it is a garden, of course, but even more than that, it's a temple, and it's a picture of what God wants the whole world to be like. He wants to fill all the world with His presence. He wants to fill all the world right. with His glory. Adam was supposed to be part of that, and we talk about that some in the book. And of course, I only barely scratched the surface, but Adam and Eve had a significant role there to play as God's representatives, as indeed His His icons. Uh, on the earth in this temple, which they were, I argue, and Adam was supposed to expand that temple into all the world. And of course, how does the Bible end with a temple, new temple coming down from heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, where finally there at the end of Revelation, all the world is indeed made a temple where the Lord is glorified, where Jesus is on the throne. So there's an incredible unity of, of the biblical story, I believe. And uh, I, I, I try and and trace that and follow that and unpack what that might mean for men uh, in the book. But yes, it has left my my liberal critics quite baffled, uh, as, partly because we're very unfamiliar. I mean, just generationally now, Absolutely. very unfamiliar with with even very basic biblical narratives. And so, uh, one reviewer said that they just couldn't figure out at all the 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 argument. And how the argument progressed here, and and I I wanted to respond. It's very simple. It just follows the Bible, you know, That's chronologically. Right. I mean, yeah. it's just there's, it's not complicated. But in any event, that was my that was my hope and my my thought in writing it that way. Yeah, one of the ways I try to uh, deal with things uh, in, in terms of helping Christians to understand the cultural sphere is by uh, trying continually to help people to understand where to place the beginning of something. Mm-hmm. Because it really matters whether you begin in Eden or after the judgment of God casting Adam and Eve for their sin out of Eden. And so if something is in Eden, it's, it's, it's good by, by definition, unquestionably good, un, good in an unmitigated sense. Uh, but, uh, but every good is tarnished on the other side. Or, or, to, or to put it this way, marriage is found uh, in the, uh, the garden. Adultery is found in the world after the fall. And, and so, you know, noticing that's very important. But I hear Christians misrepresent something when it comes to manhood and vocation and, uh, and uh, our purpose in life. I'll hear people say, well, you know, uh, God's judgment was that now we're going to have to work. That's not the way the Bible reads at all. Uh, we're, we're to work in the garden. Adam was assigned, and Eve were assigned to work. Adam had a distinctive role in the garden. Uh, after they sinned and God's judgment fell upon them when they were cast out of the garden, they weren't told they're going to have to start working when they hadn't been. Adam was told you're going to have to work and it's going to be much, much harder now. Yes, absolutely. And I think that is so critical for men in particular, but absolutely. I mean, Adam is assigned tasks. He's assigned to be a co-laborer with God. I mean, that is really the incredible high calling. He is God's and That's Eve, right. God's representatives. His Again, to go back to the temple imagery, I mean, and I, I try to develop this a little bit in the book without boring the reader too much, but in the ancient Near East, they, they would have been, particularly at the, at the time of, of Genesis or thereafter, they would have, readers would have been familiar with the idea of temple stories and temple imagery. Well, what's in the center of every temple they would have been familiar with? Well, a representation of the God, an icon. In this case, that is Adam and Eve, who are the images, the representatives of God on earth, an incredibly high calling. That is theirs before the fall, absolutely, absolutely. critically, of course. Yeah. And so part as part of that work, part of the as the image of God, as the representatives of God, they are to join him after his pattern in the work he is doing. And so work is a high and noble calling. And yeah, the, the part that's difficult for us now is a curse lies on our work. And uh, right. that, of course, is, is part of what uh, Jesus came to address and, and will ultimately be addressed in the new heavens and new earth, fully reversed. But work is vitally important. And I think that's, that's right. one of the reasons that when you start talking to a man about working, about contributing, about whether it's as simple as showing up to a job on time. There's a reason why your life begins to get into order when you start doing things like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to get a job. Yeah, I am going to show up on time. Yeah, I am going to apply myself to a task. What happens? Your life starts to click into order. There's a reason for that. You were made that way. It reflects what God has meant for you to do. 
Yeah, and you know that assignment is something uh, that uh, both in in Genesis one and two, but also in Genesis three, is addressed uniquely to Adam. Now, it's not exclusively to Adam, as we see in texts. Well, the narrative texts of the Old Testament and the New Testament, as well as as passages from say the Proverbs. But nonetheless, there is a distinctive assignment made to Adam and thus to men in both the, the creation mandate and, and also in the, on the other side of the fall in, in terms of the responsibility now to work and to work hard. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. In Genesis 1 and 2, I mean, it's in Genesis 2 in particular to Adam. He, he's given the instruction to keep the garden and to cultivate it. And, right. and both of those words are, are very, very significant at keeping, protecting, guarding, maintaining, cultivating to continue to, to make the garden flourish. And then, and I argue in the book and also to build it out, to expand it. And I tell stories about my grandfather, who was a farmer, a cultivator, and what, what we do, what all men are called to do in being keepers. We're supposed to protect and provide, but also being cultivators who are supposed to build and who are supposed to be willing to, to, to bring gardens to the wilderness, as it were, to extend out the metaphors. So there, there's something very powerful about that that is for men. And as you said, that it comes in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, particularly for men that they are supposed to be doing. And, and again, that's why I say, I think for young men, that's why there's such power in leaning into the responsibilities God has meant for you. When you start to take on those responsibilities he's given you, there's a reason why your life changes and things in your life begin to change. It's because this is how he's made you to be. And, and men can feel that even if they don't yet know the Lord, they can see that as they begin to live into the pattern that he's designed them for. In the first part of your book, you kind of lay out the cultural and uh, say sociological crisis and, uh, and, and make it rather personal. But I, I, I want to ask you, uh, when you talk about the battle uh, to which uh, men are called, um, that, that's after Genesis 3, that that's a perpetual reality or a perennial challenge. But uh, it seems that uh, that an incredible number, millions of young men in our society don't even know they're called to that battle. Yeah, I, that's right. I think that, you know, the battle is, is several fold. I mean, we're talking about the battle against evil, against sin in the world, which all of us, of course, have a, a hand in. I mean, we, we, we come into the world now uh, confronting that battle in the midst of that battle. And of course, we're personally implicated in it. And I tell some of the stories in my book about just seeing that up, up close and personal, my own life and the lives of other people. And the, I lost my best friend to, to suicide when he was 22 and I had just turned 23. And I, I tell that story in the book. It's just what really for me as a young man brought home the reality of sin, of brokenness, of evil in the world. And, and we're called to confront that both without and within. I mean, and I think part of my message to men in this book is that the path to manhood really is a path to character. I mean, it really is. It begins with right. having your own heart and soul shaped. And of course, as Christians, we say a little more than that, right? I mean, I'm, I'm scratching the surface with that, but only the surface, sure. right? I mean, what we really know is, is that the path to true manhood is to grow up into the image of Jesus Christ, into in the full maturity of Christ, as Paul will say, right? And that's the that's the full gospel there. That's the pattern that we're called to. But that is going to mean a confrontation with and reckoning with the sin in our lives, the sin in the world, the evil in our lives, the evil in the world. And part of our, our job as men and part of our calling is to confront that both without and within. And again, I just say that while that is certainly that can be difficult and is difficult, there's also a certain joy in it because to be able to live your life and to see change come, to see other people's lives change, to see uh, your family grow, to see the Lord at work through you and other people's lives, that there's a fulfillment and a joy in that that is incredible, that is really only comes if you're willing to confront uh, the darkness that uh, we all of us harbor and that, of course, we face in the world. You know, you address uh, some issues, many issues, but uh... Uh, several come immediately to my mind with, with some amazing candor. And I guess at the top of that list would be a United States senator writing about the problem of, uh, of young men in particular and pornography. And uh, you deal with that pretty straightforwardly. And I just want to make the case that uh, th throughout most of human history, uh, first of all, uh, there was a very limited amount of personal privacy. <laughs> Everybody lived in one house, uh, in one room. Uh, th there was very little personal privacy. Uh, we've created a very different 
the context now. We've developed the sense of personal autonomy, which is now being downshifted into you know childhood. And and then we we set a teenager alone with a, a smartphone. And, uh, and and then we take the moral boundaries off when it comes to something like pornography and the legal boundaries. Uh, this turns out it, it, you know, to, to be a very deadly weapon against uh, faithful manhood in this generation. Oh, hugely, hugely, hugely deadly. And I think it's hard. It's, I'm 43. I think it's hard even for me at my age to fully grasp because I lived, I, I, I was a teenager in the early 20-something before the smartphone. Right. And I think, you know, the smartphone came out, what, 2006, 2007. I was I was in my my mid 20s by then. So I think that it, it is hard to fully comprehend the effect of having pornography so ubiquitously available. You know, as one scholar who I quote in the book says that a, a young man today uh, can see more bare flesh, uh, if you'll pardon the expression, in five minutes than his or probably really five seconds than his grandfather could see in a lifetime. And, and the, the sheer. Yeah, if ever. Uh, if ever. Yeah. Right. If ever. The, the yeah. sheer amount of of just the volume, yeah. I think, of imagery constantly, constantly bombarding a young men in particular uh, is incredibly desensitizing. And we're seeing it show up in the data everywhere. And I quote some of this in the book. I mean, we're seeing it in delayed rates of marriage and family formation. We're seeing it in a loss of confidence. This is something I want to point out because I think it's, it's, it is counter a little counterintuitive just because of the way that the porn industry, frankly, sells their product. What they, what they sell them in is, is that, Oh, it's a, it's a very macho thing to do to look at porn, you know, and it, it sort of makes you a manly man and it increases your confidence. No, it doesn't. That's not what the data says. The data says the more time you spend alone, Looking at porn, the less confident men become, the less outgoing they become, the less likely they are to actually take the initiative with a real life woman and be able to form a relationship with her in a healthy way. So it's really, really striking what this is doing to young men's ability, all actually men of all ages, because the usage is just it, it's huge across all ages, but particularly young men, their ability to form relationships to form marriages, to raise families. Um, it's devastating. And we need to talk about it. And by the way, the left absolutely detests this. I mean, this is one of the first things they picked up in my book. And in that speech, I gave you reference a couple of years ago, I think I mentioned porn in passing in the speech. And it was a lightning rod for them because there's something about it. There's something about that issue that I think gets at the left's view that uh, personal autonomy should mean doing whatever you want to do, however you want to do it, and especially if it is in defiance of the sexual ethics of the Bible, then it's really good, and we're really for that. And I think this issue really animates them in that way. Yeah, by the way, footnote here, we won't have time to trace, but one of my arguments is that the big loser on the left for the last 30 years has been second-wave feminists. Uh, it is because even on the issue of porn, it turns out that the sexual revolution is far more powerful than feminism. And now the transgender revolution turns out to be far more powerful than feminism. So it's, it's interesting to see that the left, uh, the left is monolithic in one sense, but in another sense, it has its own winners and losers and uh, the feminists are the losers. Yeah. Well, and, and I think you can see now that women of all ages, all yes. backgrounds, women are really yes. the losers in, in this, this porn epidemic with men. I mean, you can see again, and, and men are getting married much later. Women who want to get married uh, are having trouble finding suitable partners. Some of that is because of education. Some of it is job status. Some of it's the fact, though, that, that men are less and less relationally, interpersonally able to form relationships, to make commitments, and to stick to them. And there's all kinds of dysfunctions that are attendant on that. And porn yeah. is a huge, huge driver. And it's everybody loses. Yeah. I mean, the men lose too. But uh, it's really women are asked to bear the brunt of it. Or, no, they're not asked. They're forced to bear the brunt of it. And, yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I have so many young women everywhere I go who just make very clear to me. Uh, and they write in uh, 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 to the programs just to say, look, I, uh, I desperately want to be married. Where are the young men? And, and, and just one thing for that to be true in society, frankly, as a Christian, it's a far greater tragedy for that to be true uh, in the church. Uh, when, it, when I was making that reference to feminism, let me be clear, it's a strange thing right now that you have uh, you know, the, uh, uh, some of the old feminists and conservative Christians are the last people willing to make a moral judgment against, it's not the same moral judgment, but it is a moral judgment against pornography that tells you a great deal about where our society has gone. Um, I, I want to turn to two big issues uh, in the time that remains. And, and 
you know, we're, we're kind of just at the, the threshold of the, of the big argument of your book about these six roles uh, that men are called to fulfill. And I just want to set you up, Senator, by saying, I'm concerned every time I see this kind of list, uh, because I'm afraid what's coming is union archetypes. Uh, you know, the, these, these are just illusory, helpful metaphors for men to consider. Uh, I, I want to say that one of the things I appreciate most about your book is that these are not metaphors for you. Uh, they are actual roles that men are called to fulfill. How did you get there? Well, I got there by trying to trace the scriptural pattern and trying to think about after Eden, as then we go forward, as, as, as we are propelled forward and men are propelled forward uh, after the fall, and still called by the Lord to still called by uh, by the Lord to expand the garden, as it were. I mean, to to make the world a temple. But what does that look like now in a fallen world? And and what does it look like to live into that? What kind of character does that call require? And as I as I trace the biblical story, then uh, I came upon these different roles, these these different responsibilities would be another way of, of putting it that I think men are called towards. And they are husband and father and warrior and priest and builder and king. And you, I look at these and illustrate these from the lives of, of different figures in the Old Testament, following it chronologically, leading up to finally uh, culminating with, with King with, with King Solomon. And there is a little bit of a narrative arc there in that I don't, I don't harp on this, but you know, it, it, there's a reason that it culminates sort of with King there. Uh, with the building of the temple, I mean, you you really see the narrative arc that runs from Genesis 12 through uh, Solomon's kingship. You know, there's a crescendo there, and then obviously, right. as you know, then there is a decrescendo, and there's a coming apart after that in the biblical narrative, and uh, will await a better king uh, that uh, than Solomon was uh, for for some time in the person of Jesus. But in any event, I, I follow through. I try to trace through this narrative and look at the different kinds of responsibilities and roles that I think the Lord calls men into by virtue of his commission to them that runs all the way back to the garden. Senator, I uh, was doing some work uh, a few years ago, pretty deeply into census records, uh, which is actually pretty fascinating data, as you know. It represents very, very fascinating information. But but nonetheless, one of the interesting things is, is that you look at American history, you look at how the census w was asking questions. It would ask questions with the clear assumption that the default is going to be that there's a family in this home and that begins with marriage and, and then leads to children. And, and then there would be categories for, for instance, other adults in the home uh, and, and things like that. But I, it's just reassuring to understand that at least for much of our nation's history, there's a pretty good understanding that, uh, that there was a base definition of a man and a woman united in marriage. And then the children who would come from that, marriage. There'd be others connected to extended kinship, but, but that's, the, that's the core. And uh, the assumption was that it was, uh, it was the responsibility of a society and of a congregation, for that matter, and for parents, to get boys ready to become husbands and fathers. Nature, as we said, uh, has a lot to do with, with uh, girls becoming wives and mothers. It takes a lot more to produce a husband and a father. Yes, it does. And I think there's something very significant about the fact that in Genesis 12, when God calls Abraham, when he calls him to take back up, I argue, that the mission of Adam in a new way now, when he calls him to take that back up, what's he calling him to do? What's, he, what's the promise that he makes to him? He's going to be a father. I think there's something very significant about that that men need to hear. If you want to do something significant with your life, if you want to have a legacy, and I think every man does, be a husband be a father. There is a God-given shape to those roles. There is a God-given blessing on those responsibilities that if you will live into that, you will see your life, you will see your life really come into to balance and also see meaning, see purpose, see legacy. But I, I think it can't be emphasized enough in this generation when men are told constantly by pop culture that being a dad is a waste of time, that kids are a drag, they're expensive, they suck up your time, delay marriage as long as you can. That is decidedly not the biblical picture. And I think men need to see that the power and the, the profundity of being a husband and a father and the joy of it. And I, I try to get that across in the book by sharing some of the stories of my own boys and my kids. There's incredible joy in being a father, but it is also, I can say, the most significant and worthwhile thing I have done in my life. And gloriously exhausting and, yes. uh, and, and, and com completely obsessive. 
yes. and that's the way it has to be uh, because you're not just raising children, you're raising your children. You're not just the father to children, you're the father to three children uh, who have very clear expectations and, and needs. Yes, absolutely right. And, and this is one of the things I think that is so important why fatherhood is a gateway to full manhood is that what fatherhood and and for that matter marriage i mean fundamentally the two go obviously right together what it demands from a man is that he no longer live for himself that he place others ahead of himself that he learn to make himself expendable and there's something that's beautifully anticipatory of 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 christ there maybe i should say reflective rather than anticipatory i mean since we're obviously we're made in christ's image not the other way around but we are we're reflecting the lord there who gave his life as a ransom for many who came to be to serve, not to be served. That's the pattern, whether men recognize it or not, whether they're believers or not. Nevertheless, that's the pattern that being a husband and being a father calls them into, into serving others, into sacrificing themselves, into disciplining their own wants and desires for the good of other people. And I think that's why it is both so profoundly difficult, but also so profoundly meaningful and significant. Yeah, you know, I get into trouble in a lot of circles, even in Christian circles, when I make very clear that the category of singles just not found or un unmarried just as a as a preference or a lifestyle. It's just not found in the scripture. Um, it, it, there, there are clearly people who are not married and, and there are explanations for why they are not. But by the time you get to the New Testament, uh, you know, I think Luther distills this better than anyone else in the Reformation when he says everyone has a calling. And there are certain persons called to do certain things that are incompatible with marriage. Uh, the Apostle Paul is an example of one who, who if, if, if he were married, would not have been able to fulfill the apostolic mission that he had, traveling at great risk throughout the Roman Empire, and eventually, we believe, uh, you know, facing uh, execution for his faithfulness to Christ. But by the time the New Testament's complete, it's very clear that the household codes are establishing the fact that the norm is going to be that for the sake of civilization and the sake of the church, you're going to have a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and they shall raise the children that are given to them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And uh, without that, you don't have civilization, period. Exactly right. And, and that's a message that is not popular in the United States today, but it's one that is absolutely true. And I, in the book, what I, what I say to young men is, maybe you're not married yet, maybe you're not a father, but you can begin to acquire the character of a husband and the character of a father, and you should. You should try to become a man. You should work to become a man who can be counted upon to make a commitment and to keep it. That's what a husband does, to provide and to protect. That's what a father does, who lives sacrificially for others. That's what husbands and fathers do every day of the week. They have to. Maybe we do it imperfectly. Certainly, I do it imperfectly. But that's the overall calling. And I think for young men, we need to send a clear cultural message that being a husband and father is the best thing you can do with your life number one. And that number two, acquiring the character of a husband and father is a lifelong venture, but it is an incredibly exciting and meaningful one, and they should go for it. I uh, I have one suggested uh, uh, addition uh, for your second edition, which uh, uh, may need to come out a generation from now. And I say that because I'm a generation older than you. And I will tell you that uh, the biblical vision is not just of being a father, but of being a grandfather. It is not just a, you know, a covenant and a promise made to our children, but to our children's children. And I can just tell you on the other side of being a grandfather, uh, it just makes the promises uh, given to Abraham and, uh, and his descendants all the more precious. I mean, my goodness, uh, I, I wouldn't trade this for anything. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's a, it's, that's a wonderful vision. And I, I, I say in the book, I tell the story about my grandfather and, and I try to capture some of this. Uh, one of my enduring memories of him, he was a farmer. Uh, he's gone now, but uh, he was a farmer his lifelong, uh, not, not famous, not important in the world's eyes, not wealthy, none of that, but a, a, a simple man in, in the best way who loved the Lord, who loved his work, who loved his family. And one of my enduring memories of him is towards the end of his life, we used to have these big family pheasant hunts where we all go pheasant hunting. It's how I, I learned to hunt with my grandfather and my dad. And I can still remember him. I tell this story in the book at these pheasant hunts surrounded by his five boys. My mother was the only girl, youngest of six, his five boys, their kids, 
their children's children, you know, all of us. I mean, there'd be 40, 50 of us men there. I was just a, a young boy at this time. And seeing him at the sort of apex of this, to me, I thought that is what it looks like to be a man. It looks like someone who has given his life for these other men, uh, who has who now has around him these generations, uh, who's getting to enjoy. I mean, what a blessing to see them flourish. And there's a, a beautiful fullness there that I think that deep in his heart, every man longs for. Yeah, I tell people in one way, I had three mothers uh, with my mother and then two grandmothers. But in a far more profound sense, I had three fathers uh, with my father and his father and my uh, my mother's father. Um, I was surrounded by models of fatherhood and manhood. And so even if my entire world had just been a little cosmos of, of, of that extended family, um, it, it would have been intact. And for that, I'm just incredibly thankful. I, I, I feel like as a society, we are making it less likely that that biblical picture is going to be found many places and among many people. No, absolutely. I mean, this is one of the real problems with the epidemic of fatherlessness that we now have is that so many men and young women don't have, uh, they don't have that role model. They don't have that protector. They don't, they don't have that, the beautiful continuity of the generations. But I will say this, my message to young men is, even if you grew up without a father or your relationship with your father is, is, is not good at all That's and right. is, is troubled or difficult or downright bad, you can be the person who breaks that cycle in your family. You can change the destiny of your family by living into these promises that God has for you. And that's incredibly hopeful. You know, we don't have to be controlled by our past. I mean, there's a deep gospel truth there, right? We're, we're not controlled by our past. Uh, we, we have an incredible future ahead of us, and every man can be part of that. And so I think for, for men who feel unfathered, you know, you can you can find fathers out there in the world, uh, not necessarily your own biologically, but also you can become one yourself and be transformative in that way. Right. And, you know, this is one of the glories of the gospel as as manifested in a, in a congregation where yes. we all have many fathers, many mothers, many brothers, many sisters. And, uh, and it's one of the most powerful promises of the Bible that God declares himself the father of the fatherless. And, and I, that's gendered language, as the modern theorists would say. But he declares himself the father of the fatherless. And in the sense that he names himself father and declares himself uh, the father to the fatherless, that's an incredible promise. Incredible promise. And, and I think I'm glad you mentioned just the, the beautiful picture of the congregation. I think as I talk to, to young folks, one of the things that they sorely miss and sorely long for now, they usually use the word community, which is a little bit, you know, uh, flabby. But you know what they're getting at? They long for that picture of healthy families, of 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 the many generations together, and what you see in in the in the family of God, I and mean, what you see in the, in the congregation. And that's why I think uh, more than ever before, the local congregation. The example and the witness of the local congregation gathered together, the generations gathered, families gathered, worshiping the Lord together, doing life together. There is a powerful witness right there, just in the in the gathering and the life of the local church that I think is only going to become more powerful as we as we grapple more and more with the society and the fallout of broken families and fatherlessness. Senator, uh, you intended to uh, to make an argument in your book. And, uh, and you certainly did. You intended, uh, no doubt, for that argument to be made in public, and you expected a public response. Uh, the response is, in one sense, almost as, as important as your book. I mean, in terms of the public conversation. Uh, uh, and I mean by that, that it's, it's fascinating. The response to your book has been uh, following several lines. Number one, oh, no, another book on manhood. Uh, that, that's one. The other is, uh, oh, no, another, you know, uh, uh, you know, prosaic uh, call manifesto for, uh, you know, toxic masculinity uh, or another far right, you know, propaganda uh, volume. And, and by the way, on that latter score, it's really clear that so many people don't know what to do with most of your book. All they can deal with and perhaps all they read uh, was the introduction. Yes. Yeah. Oh, clearly. Clearly. No, I, I think that uh, what, what I've, I actually don't read the reviews, but. Uh, what people have gleefully repeated to me about yeah. what others have said, I think it's pretty clear. And even folks who I've talked to in, in interviews, you know, some of whom are more hostile than others, uh, it's clear that they, they, many of them just haven't read the book. But also, I think when we get to this biblical vision that we've been talking about, yeah, 
they just don't know how to take that on board. I mean, they just don't know what to do with that. One reviewer that I did see said that uh, I, I was a, how did she put it, an especially dreary sort of fervent Christian uh, who is with for all of this Bible talk. And I thought, well, you know, uh, you say dreary, but uh, I would say profoundly hopeful, because if you look again at the vision that the Bible holds out for men, I mean, it's it's bracing, it's exciting, and it's hopeful. Well, as I, uh, I did look at some of the response to your book, because I think it's a part of the intellectual context for this discussion. And I understand why you don't, but I did. And, uh, you know, another another uh, point that that came to me in looking at that is, look, uh, those who are looking for, uh, you know, some kind of far right promotion of toxic masculinity, um, they can't deal with the fact that the virtues you're calling for and the functions that you're calling men to fulfill, they just don't fit that category at all. No. So they have to say, well, it, it's just in a genre of literature that inevitably leads to toxic masculinity. So, uh, Senator, have you just inevitably added to the problem? <laughs> well, I, here's, I think, that the problem that uh, that the left has. They say that all masculinity is toxic, and this gets to the point that you're making. So even if that's not at all the argument that I'm making, they, they lump you in. But I do think, and I try to confront this in the book, too, I do think there are some who would react against this leftist Marxist narrative by taking the wrong cues. Some who would say that, you know, actually, maybe, yeah, manhood is inherently toxic and we'll revel in that and we'll glory in that. So to be a man is to be toxic. It is to be oppressive. It, 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 it is to be overbearing. And I try to point out in the book that that's wrong, too. That actually gives way too much credit to the frankly lies of the cultural Marxists and, and the left. I mean, that, that's just not true at all. That's certainly not the biblical picture. And I think what we need is is not the not the cultural Marxists, but we don't need those on the call it on the right or wherever who would react to them by taking on board their basic premise. We need to, to recover the true center ground, which is that men are called to responsibility and to leadership. Yes. And I don't shy away from that. Listen, I also use the, the words men and power together a lot. I mean, we want stronger, powerful men. And I, I will say again, I, I want powerful men, you bet, but I want them to be powerful in the way the scripture calls them that the model God has intended has called them, and that is authority in service to others for the good of others. And of course, the ultimate model of that is Jesus. Well, Senator, you uh, you certainly joined an argument, and you have, uh, I think, very helpfully extended that argument. I appreciate your book. I, I want to tell you, it was far more than uh, I expected uh, from a busy United States senator writing on a controversial issue. I, I can see there's a great deal of your heart, your family, and a, a, a far deeper urgency invested in this project. Well, thank you so much. And, and uh, those are kind words from you as a theologian as well. So I, I appreciate it. And thank you for letting me come on and talk about it. Senator Josh Hawley, thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Many thanks to my guest, Senator Josh Hawley, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you will find more than 180 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, just go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. And until next time, keep thinking. <laughs>